I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It is kind of a case of someone going rogue it reminds you of some of the, the, the things you see on TV that are complete fiction. And you think, oh, that would never happen. This nurse, you know, who's not even 40 at the time, you know, what does she know about an investigation? She's going to get herself killed. But she knew that there was something there and local people were not going to find it. They were going to have to be slapped in the face with hard evidence before they would pursue certain avenues. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South. Episode 5, The Real Deal. By September 14, 1988, the one-year anniversary of the Sherry murders, the investigation had run aground. The original state and local task force had been reduced to a single man. This is former Biloxi cop Gerald Forbes. They started condensing the number of people working on it, Lieutenant O'Bannon and I and, and almost everybody else, except for a few detectives, went back to their normal duties. The Sherry family was outraged. Lynn Spazito, who continued to believe Mayor Gerald Blessy was mixed up in the murders, accused them of not investing the necessary resources. There is limited investigative participation by local authorities, according to Spazito, because there is a manpower shortage in the police department. But the cops had a simpler explanation. They'd run out of leads. Saxon and Moffat were quick to deny Spazito's claim that a manpower shortage is keeping the police department from a more active role in the investigation. No, we, we, we don't have a manpower shortage. We simply ran out of leads. Is a reason that we have scaled it down to one man. Lynn refused to believe them. She feared the lack of leads excuse signaled the end of the hunt for her parents' killer. And so she was elated when, that fall, her father's former law partner, Pete Hallett, 
declared his intentions to run for mayor of Biloxi. In announcing his candidacy, Pete Hallett was highly critical of Biloxi's leadership over the past eight years under Gerald Blessy. We're staying still. We're not moving, okay? I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to get this city pointed back in the right direction. Pete had served as Margaret's campaign manager during her run for mayor in 1985, and he intended to keep her legacy alive. He'd said as much during his impassioned eulogy, noting, I believe Margaret would want us to continue her good fight for honest, open, and accountable government. I run not against any particular person or party, but against a style of government which puts more emphasis on public relations than performance. I just decided that, you know, I've been living in Biloxi all my life. The town's in the dumps right now. The crime rate was going up. Our taxes were drying up. Maybe I can do something about it. And I decided to run for mayor. My candidacy for mayor is a clear call for a change in the guard in Biloxi because the old guard that's run this city for the past 16 years has fallen asleep on its watch. If Pete defeated Gerald Blessy, Lynn figured, he would inject some much-needed energy into the stalled investigation. Who better to inherit the Sherry case than their father's best friend? Of course, the election was close to a year away, and Lynn wanted to see results now. That impatience had led Lynn, over the past year, to try and develop her own leads. The local TV stations ate it up. All right, after months of working on your parents' case and working to bring it to light of, of whom may have killed your parents, what can you tell us about that? Was it emotionally difficult for you? There's nothing that's emotionally difficult after you get past the fact that someone felt it necessary to shoot your parents in the head. I uh, could not stop this investigation now if I wanted to, and I certainly don't want to. It will go on whether I'm dead or alive. Gone was the timid, passive victim Biloxian saw in the murder's aftermath. The transformation had begun in the fall of 1987, when Lynn approached John Morley, assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's office in Jackson, to demand that the feds take over the case. According to Lynn, Morley sympathized, but he stressed that in order to take the case, they needed proof that a federal crime had occurred. Lynn pushed back. The cops were confident that this was a murder-for-hire case, she said, and that suggested a conspiracy. And a conspiracy is a federal crime. Morley was familiar with the cops' theory, but that's all it was at this point, a theory. There was no evidence and no proof. Leslie Miller remembers the conversation. It was like, if you think there's a conspiracy, you have to prove that. We can't just get the, the feds involved without evidence of this other than just someone saying it looks like a professional job. The Sherrys were deflated. There was no way the Biloxi police would ever prove a conspiracy. They'd struggled to find the getaway car a half mile from the crime scene. It was then that Morley made a suggestion. What Lynn should do, he said, was hire a private investigator. If he or she found evidence of a conspiracy, the feds would gladly accept the case. Lynn appreciated the advice, but she didn't know where to begin. The Gulf Coast struck her as so corrupt and incestuous, she doubted she could find someone uncompromised, as she put it. But even as the FBI refused to intervene in the Sherry homicides, they'd begun to look more closely at a different crime, 
the homosexual scam run by Angola inmates. As it happened, an agent from Mississippi's Jackson office had conducted a scam-related interview on the same day the Sherrys were killed. This young agent, he was interviewing somebody in Ocean Springs about the scam the day the Sherrys were murdered. As Keith explained, an FBI informant had alerted the Bureau's New Orleans office to the scam in the summer of 1984, more than three years before the Sherry homicides. According to FBI records, the informant, a former Angola inmate, had secretly recorded phone conversations with Kirksey as he detailed the scam's inner workings. Among other things, Kirksey had asked the source to rent a P.O. box to receive letters from prospective male lovers, creating the impression that Eddie, Kirksey's alter ego, was not a federal prisoner. By then, Kirksey had enlisted other inmates and guards in the operation, and hired people on the outside to pick up the scam's proceeds from Western Union offices on the Gulf Coast. Keith and the FBI estimated the scam was raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps even millions, from unsuspecting gay men across the U.S. and Canada. Keith learned that a postal worker in Kansas had mortgaged his house to help what he thought was a young gay man unjustly convicted of a crime, and who turned out to be Kirksey Nix. And yet, next to nothing had been done to shut the scam down. Keith explained why. Before any case can be prosecuted, it has to be approved by the United States Attorney's Office in the jurisdiction where the crime occurs. And because of the nature of the victims of the scam and because the perpetrators of the scam were already serving lengthy prison sentences, there was not a great desire on the part of most U.S. attorney's offices around the country to uh, prosecute such a case. In other words, the U.S. government wasn't eager to prosecute convicts, some of whom were already serving life sentences, for scamming gay men seeking liaisons with other young men. As Keith put it, juries, especially in states like Louisiana and Mississippi, were unlikely to sympathize with the victims. According to Keith, interest in the scam was not revived until the summer of 1986, when a member of the Canadian Parliament was scammed out of more than $200,000. He reported the crime to the U.S. State Department. Apparently, the parliamentary member was not openly gay. When the scammers discovered this, they threatened to expose his sexual orientation unless he continued sending money. After that, the FBI took the scam more seriously. In Mississippi, agents began building a network of informants, both inside Angola and along the Gulf Coast. Then, in the fall of 1987, the Sherry Task Force found something that caught the attention of the FBI's Gulfport office. In the weeks after the murders, the task force had collected boxes of phone records from the Hallett Sherry law firm. In the frenzy of the early investigation, those records were all but ignored. But once the investigation died down, a task force officer had taken a closer look, and he made an alarming discovery. I believe perhaps during one, and I can't remember for sure, but perhaps one nine-month period, there were 345 telephone calls between the Halat Law Office and Angola. Between December of 1986 and September 15, 1987, the day after the Sherrys were killed, someone at the Hallett Sherry Law Firm 
had exchanged 345 phone calls with an inmate at Angola Prison. A call to the prison confirmed that the inmate in question was Kirksey Nix. Keith Bell was shocked by the news. He immediately tracked down a few former secretaries from the law firm, who confirmed that Kirksey was one of Pete's clients. As far as what we were told about Pete Halat, he would receive numerous phone calls from Angola, and he would often close his office door, and it would often be Kirksey Nix, according to the ladies working in the law office. The women at the law office didn't know what Pete and Kirksey discussed on those calls. But given Kirksey's active role in the homosexual scam at the time, plus the sheer volume of calls, Keith figured that Pete must have been aware of it, and perhaps even involved. The task force officer who discovered the calls immediately alerted Lynn Spazito. I don't know what this means, he told her, but whatever you do, don't trust Pete Hallett. Lynn was baffled. Pete was one of the only people in Biloxi she did trust. She had never heard of Kirksey Nix and could not imagine why he and Pete had exchanged so many phone calls in the months before the murders. Then again, Pete was a criminal defense attorney. Talking to criminals was part of his job. Lynn was hoping Pete would defeat Mayor Blessy in the upcoming election, and she feared that his involvement in a scam would derail his campaign. Yet, when she brought her concerns to Pete, he quickly put her at ease. Pete explained that he had nothing to hide. He'd opened his law office to task force investigators the day he'd found the bodies, and he'd continued to answer their questions and provide anything they needed. I provided the investigators records from my law firm, which included all of my phone calls, my personal phone calls, and the phone calls from my office. I provided them with 10 years of my tax records, everything that I had, everything that I had. Bank statements, gave it all to them. And naturally, calls to Angola, which I never denied I made, were printed out for them. Pete readily admitted that Kirksey Nix was his client. Kirksey had first contacted Pete in 1979 for help obtaining a pardon from then-Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards, and he'd remained one of Pete's clients ever since. During that time, Pete insisted that he and Kirksey had never discussed anything illegal. But he did admit that Kirksey took up a lot of his time. I thought of Kirksey Nix as a pest client, and he was. He was. He was a pain in the ass. You know, I had a lot of other things to do that were more important than that. I was just overburdened by his calls and everything. You know, wanting to call and talk to me about buying land in South Louisiana to put oysters in. And and he knew this guy and he knew that guy. And I'm going, yeah, 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 yeah. I wanted you to get off the damn phone so I'd go to work, you know. And so, when a young paralegal named LaRae Sharp appeared at the Hallett Sherry office one day, offering to take Kirksey off Pete's plate, he was relieved. She says, um, I'm a friend of Kirksey Nix. I want to help him work on his uh, legal work, try to, try to get him a pardon, try to get him this, try to get him that and the other. I worked as a paralegal in Chicago, and um, maybe you can help us out. You may remember LaRae from episode two, She had met Kirksey as a young girl at her mother's brothel in Fort Smith, Arkansas in the mid-1960s. Twenty years later, the two had struck up a correspondence, 
which had evolved into a long-distance relationship. I thought Lorraine and, and uh, Kirksey were probably in an amorous relationship as well as you can be if you're in jail. Lorraine had recently divorced her husband and was living with their two daughters in Chicago. As Lorraine told Pete, Kirksey had renewed his efforts to secure a pardon from the Louisiana governor, and she'd agreed to help. Years earlier, Kirksey had received a life insurance payout from his wife's death during the Frank Corso trial. He'd used the money to buy a small house in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, just across the bay from Biloxi. He suggested Lorraine and her two girls could stay there while she helped to work on his pardon. She said, well, I just need a, a point of operation for when I'm working on the uh, case. You know, I, this will be my point of operation. I said, okay, that's fine. I said, well, I'll tell you what, if you can sit behind that chair and answer that telephone, and if we have work to do on a word process to do it, you can use my law library and do your research. And she said, okay, fine. Lynn was satisfied by Pete's explanation. On some level, she resented the task force's implication that Pete wasn't trustworthy. It brought back memories of the accusations leveled against her adopted brother, Eric. With the BPD at a standstill and the FBI reluctant to act, Lynn decided it was time to conduct her own investigation. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. In the months after her talk with Pete, Lynn Spazito, a 35-year-old suburban nurse with no law enforcement training, became something more akin to a private detective. She bought a 357 Magnum and started taking target practice. She began recording her phone calls with the police and interviewed dozens of people in Biloxi and beyond, searching for leads. Of course, Lynn didn't live in Biloxi. She worked as a registered nurse in Raleigh, North Carolina, 800 miles away, where she and her husband were raising three kids, aged 16, 14, and 7. She often worked a 13-hour shift at Tremont Medical Center, then drove another 13 hours alone through the night to Mississippi. Other times, she brought the kids with her. When Lynn would come into town to try to investigate, they would stay with uh, Becky and John Fields. And my mom and Becky and John were good friends. So my mom and I would go over and there would be a lot of sitting around the table talking about what Lynn has found out. That's Robert Horensky, whose mother Diane had worked with Margaret Sherry on the city council. A lot of times she and Becky 
would go out at night and park in front of the strip club, park in front of certain known people's houses and see what they could see and snoop around. Needless to say, Lynn's behavior concerned her family and friends. Hey, let's go drive at 10 o'clock at night by what we believe is a bad person's house and see if we see anything. It was very dangerous. <laughs> My mom worried a lot about Lynn. Lynn always carried a gun in her purse, but Lynn's a nurse. She has no criminal experience. Lynn's snooping did not go unnoticed. By the spring of 1988, she was getting regular death threats. Lynn didn't keep the threats to herself. She spoke openly about them to local TV stations, knowing her appearance would attract a wide audience. It was part of her strategy to keep the case alive. How do you get those threats? Sometimes by phone, sometimes in person. In person while you're in Biloxi? Yes. And by phone also when I'm at home. I have received threats as vague as you're really in over your head, you can't kick a dragon in the mouth and not expect to be burned, to they aren't going to come at you head on, they're going to come behind you and shoot you in the back of the head. One of her children answered the phone one time and it was like, tell your mom she's not going to make it to Biloxi alive. I'm thinking, this is just nuts. You're going to get killed and you're going to leave three kids with no mom. But she is fearless. It didn't matter if she was getting death threats. It didn't matter if she had people in Biloxi telling her, basically, why don't you just drop this? We don't need to air our dirty laundry for the whole world to see. It did not matter. She was not afraid, and she was not going to drop it. You took your story to the media. You've been criticized about that by some. What do you say to those people? I will do whatever it takes to get this taken care of. I'm not afraid. That's not part of my nature. And if it happens, it happens. You keep your soul in order, and if you die, you know, this is all garbage anyway in the long run. After months of acting like a private eye, Lynn was finally put in touch with a real one. His name was Rex Armistead, and he came highly recommended from Lynn's law enforcement contacts, including Harrison County's chief deputy, Joe Price. Uh, Rex was a good friend. He was a flashy dresser. He liked good clothes. He liked to present himself good. Rex was a legend in the Deep South. At six feet, 230 pounds, with a bald head and piercing blue eyes, he drove a Cadillac and was known to carry a pearl-handled pistol. His great-grandfather was Confederate General Louis Armistead, who led Pickett's charge at the Battle of Gettysburg during the Civil War. As a former chief investigator for the Mississippi Highway Patrol and the State Attorney General's office, Rex and Joe Price had spent much of the 60s and early 70s tracking down members of the Dixie Mafia. In fact, Many credit Rex with coining the name. It showed how really brilliant his mind was on knowing who all these people were. I won't say he read up on it or he wasn't a nerd type person. 
It just came to him natural. And Vrex um, was a very aggressive guy. If he, if he had to sort of bop somebody upside the head to get them to confess to a murder, hey, we want that murder solved. Things have changed now because you can't do things like that. But Rex knew how to get results. To the Sherrys, Rex sounded like the perfect fit. He was fearless and willing to take big risks. In 1974, he'd exposed a murder-for-hire scheme in Georgia involving the heir to the world's largest pesticide fortune by posing as a hitman. But as Lynn and her siblings looked deeper into Rex's background, they were disturbed by what they found. During the murder-for-hire trial, Rex had admitted to killing nine people. In 1970, he'd been accused of attempting to interfere with the investigation into the infamous police shooting at Jackson State University, where two civil rights protesters were killed and 12 injured. I don't think he had a conscience. I truly don't. This is Gerald Forbes again. He'd met Rex a few times during his days with Biloxi PD. There are few individuals I've met in my life where I would say that that's a bad man and I don't mean a criminal man I mean a, a bad man physically that that scare you in January of 1989 Lynn invited Rex to her family's home in Raleigh Rex seemed legit but her months in Biloxi had put her on edge and she took extreme precautions they picked Rex up and Dick, her husband, was driving. She sat in the back, sort of like uh, the old mobster movies where you always want your back against the wall so you can see what's coming. So she sat in the back with her gun in her purse since she now had a concealed carry license, basically in case this guy with a very scary reputation was not what they were hoping he would be. She was very nervous about it. Um, one of these things where you you call and let a bunch of people know where you're going to be in case I don't come back, here's the last person I was with kind of thing. But Rex allayed Lynn's concerns. He told her, I'm a front row parishioner of the First Presbyterian Church in Lula, Mississippi, and I don't have a problem with my conscience. When Lynn asked about the nine people he'd killed, Rex replied, I've never shot anybody that didn't need it. Once she met with him, she had a level of comfort that, you know, this man's the real deal. Could be kind of scary, but was definitely going to get the job done. Rex's services didn't come cheap. His rate for the job was 50 grand, or $120,000 in today's money. This was well beyond the Sherry family's means, but they resolved to raise the money somehow. You know, he, he was not cheap, but... If the alternative is not having this resolved ever, then, you know, he's worth every penny. To prove that a federal case was warranted, Rex first needed to understand what the feds knew. Soon after accepting the job, he stopped by the FBI's resident agency in Gulfport. Rex came down to the FBI and talked to Royce Ignite and myself I'm looking for any guidance or thoughts uh, we might have about the case. As I recall, we mentioned the scam, which emanated out of Angola. And with the mention of Angola, Rex indicated that he would probably travel to Angola 
and talked to an inmate there he knew named Bobby Joe Fabian. You may remember Bobby Joe Fabian from episode four. He's the guy who'd reluctantly taught Jimmy Cox how the scam worked before Kirksey even got involved. Rex, it turned out, had a history with Bobby Joe. Nearly 20 years earlier, he'd arrested him for kidnapping and murdering a millionaire businessman in Memphis. Not long after he spoke to Keith and Royce, Rex paid a visit to Bobby Joe at Angola. Lynn was in Biloxi at the time, preparing to attend a campaign rally for Pete Hallett, when Rex called with an update. What he shared with her would ultimately reframe the public's understanding of the Sherry homicides. In the aftermath of the murder, I'm not in the market in Biloxi any longer as a reporter, but the story was a profoundly big statewide Mississippi story, as you might imagine. This is Ed Bryson, a former news reporter for WLBT in Jackson, who covered the Sherry case. Over time, uh, I did establish an ongoing relationship with Lynn in which I would just check in with her. And, and I do remember many phone calls with Lynn trying to keep up with and understand from her perspective what was going on with the investigation. And my deal with Lynn was, look, Lynn, I know you want to solve and find out and see the people who did this to your parents punished. Of, of course, I'm a news reporter. I'm here to try to find and advance the story around this because, you know, all this time has passed and doesn't seem like we know who did this or why. Lynn respected Ed as a reporter and liked the fact that he was based outside Biloxi. In the summer of 1988, she suggested that Ed contact a valuable source inside Angola. She begins to let me know that there is somebody who's essential for law enforcement investigating this murder. This guy is a prisoner at Angola. His name is Bobby Joe Fabian. Lynn explained that a private investigator she'd hired named Rex Armistead had spoken to Bobby at Angola some months earlier. Bobby had shared some explosive information with Rex that implicated other Angola inmates. Lynn was worried that he'd be killed before he had a chance to testify. It was a big concern for her. This is why I think she was... Uh, interested in working with a news reporter to capture whatever it is Bobby Joe Fabian had to offer and had to say about what he knew about the murder of her parents. Ed knew he had a major scoop on his hands. He began frantically trying to arrange an interview with Bobby Joe at Angola. I just remember going to the TV newsroom, which was small and cramped with ashtrays, and I'm smoking cigarettes like crazy. And I have two phones. And I began to like, call everybody and everywhere and everything to make this happen. I'm talking to the prison people, I'm talking to Lynn, I'm talking to law enforcement people, and I'm trying to get clearance to get in the prison. Today, gaining media access to a federal prison can take weeks, if not months. For Ed, in 1989, it took less than a day. So I just remember driving down a long sort of two-lane road, it seems like, to get into the prison. It is absolutely in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. And then I remember being, you know, escorted into the whatever the visitor's area is and from there to another place to do the interview itself. All right, we're going to set up. If I can figure out which one of these keys does, we don't have open this thing, hardly open. 
you know, camera was put the camera on tripod and got all set. Check your microphone. One, two, three, four, five. So we're all sitting there. I'm sitting down. Bobby Joe Fabian walks in with his Dr. Pepper in his hand and a cigarette in another hand with his hair slicked back and his sunglasses on. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm just about set. Okay. With the camera rolling, Bobby Joe Fabian and Ed Bryson sat down at a small card table and began the interview. When did anyone from Mississippi uh, or from the coast, when did they come here? How did they get in touch with you? Rex Armstead got in touch with me because he knows me for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. He knows Kirsten Next for years and years. He knows everybody involved, you know. And he knew by checking and stuff something was going on. So he come to me, and he asked me about it, and I told him about it. He's good at what he does. No. He's given me many nightmares. After speaking to Rex that spring, Bobby said, he had shared his information with members of Biloxi and Harrison County law enforcement, but nothing had been done. Bobby claimed they were either too lazy or too corrupt to act on it. Everything down there is crooked, you know, just dealing with this case. So who do you trust? Who do you go to? Who do you trust? You see, in a case like this. Having established a rapport with his subject, Ed got to the point of the interview. Okay, um, first just tell me, uh, tell me who killed the, sh- the Sherry's and I mean who hired someone to do it and why you, you believe that. Okay, the Sherry's was killed because a hit was put on them by Peter Lett and Curtsy Nix. And why was it done? Peter Lett was holding a large amount of money for four of us. You see, me, Curtsy, and uh, someone else, you know. And um, when his money was demanded, uh, he said uh, Sherry swung with it. Sherry was holding it. When you say swung, you mean what? He uh, ripped us off. How much money? Between four and five hundred thousand dollars, and uh, this was all got from scamming, working together, beating homosexuals. There was a fortune being made, you know, on a regular daily basis. Bobby was offering a brand new theory about the motive behind the Sherry murders. Kirksey and his collaborators had been funneling profits from the scam through Pete and Vince's law office. When Kirksey learned that a half a million dollars had disappeared, he turned to Pete, and Pete laid the blame on Vince. They didn't want to kick this money down, give us our money, that somebody was going to die, and better Sherry than him, you know? And uh, Peter Hurlett agreed to have him killed, if that was the case, Ed asked, why was Margaret Sherry killed? Bobby's answer, because she was there. Well, she was just there. Uh, they don't believe in leaving witnesses. And uh, in a contract killing, they always, uh, if there would have been kids or anybody else there, they'd have been dead too. Ed then asked the next obvious question. How did Bobby Joe know Pete Hallett was tied up in all this? I was there when, when the, Agreement was made. To kill Mr. Sherry? Yeah. Was, was Peter Lett there? Yeah. Me, what? Peter Lett, Kirksey Nix, and another inmate. And you sat down together here? At Angola. And we discussed it on the phone several times. 
Ed asked what Pete had said during the meeting. Bobby replied, Can't let people get away with things like this. You know, something has to be done, you know, regardless of the cost. I mean, you ain't let nobody get away with swinging with that kind of money. Sitting in his house in Austin, Texas, 30 years later, the thing that stands out in Ed's memory was Bobby Joe's expression, Vince swung with the money, which he'd repeated several times. He used the phrase, he would say, Pete Hallett said to Kirksey Nix that Sherry swung with it. Sherry stole the money out of this lucrative scam. And then therefore, a guy who's left them holding the bag like that without all the money that they were looking to have out of this scam, something had to be done about that. That he, There had to be some consequences for somebody stealing from these prisoners running this elaborate scam inside Angola. Lynn had explained the gist of Bobby's story to Ed prior to the interview. But sitting across from Bobby at Angola, Ed felt as if he were hearing it for the first time. Still, the question remained, was any of it true? Bobby Joe Fabian was a convicted murderer with a reputation as a gifted con man. He also had ulterior motives for cooperating with the investigation. Lynn had told Ed that Bobby wanted to be transferred out of Angola, where he was serving life without parole, to the Mississippi State Penitentiary, where parole was a real, if remote, possibility. Ed didn't know if Bobby had invented the story to procure a transfer. What he did know was that the authorities on the Gulf Coast were taking Bobby's claims very seriously. I don't want to put allegations from some prisoner that are uh, without any validity of any kind, but what I am quite sure of is that these allegations however sensational they are, are absolutely being taken quite seriously by the law enforcement uh, folks who were investigating this case at that time. The authorities are taking to heart Bobby Joe Fabian's allegations. This is the central focus of the investigation at this time. That's my story. The idea that Pete Hallett, the Sherry's best friend, the man who delivered the eulogy at their funeral was responsible for their deaths was sensational enough, but it was made even more so by the fact that just a few months earlier, Pete Hallett had been elected mayor of Biloxi. Ed Bryson now faced the daunting prospect of accusing Biloxi's sitting mayor of being part of a murder conspiracy. We were not gonna do the story without uh, reaction from, from Pete Hallett to these allegations because of course, the re- unbelievably serious nature of them regarding him and his role. So we flew to Biloxi, I went to City Hall, he agreed to do the interview. Ed had done a lot of uncomfortable interviews in his career, but this one ranked near the top. I specifically sort of presented to Pete Hallett the core allegations from the Bobby Joe Fabian interview, and Pete Hallett said to me uh, a number of things, but especially I remember, you know, the outrage, or he was indignant, how dare I accuse him about being involved in the murder of his dearest and best friends. And I tell you today that they're not true. And I'll tell anybody today, if anybody comes in here and says that I had anything to do with that case, I'll tell them to their face that they're liars, that it's not true. To suggest that my representation of an inmate in Angola would connect me to, to, the, to a case involving my best and dearest friend is just preposterous. Just preposterous. It wasn't pretty. But Ed got what he needed. He and his cameraman flew back to Jackson, where Ed met with his editors at WLBT. 
The question now became, did they have enough to air the story? We were just trying to figure out, do we really have what we think we should have to present this story on television in Mississippi? And the decision was made in the newsroom, yes, we do. We have a very sensational, explosive allegations from a central figure who's the uh, key source for the law enforcement authorities who are working on this murder case. And I know that for sure, that the allegations that he's articulating are the subject, the core focus of the investigation. I that's found that unshakable. The story aired on the 10 o'clock news on WLBT-TV in Jackson. It was picked up by the biggest TV stations in the state, and the national media wasn't far behind. After two years of little to no progress, the Sherry case had entered a new phase. The investigation into the murders of Judge Sherry and his wife took a giant step forward. And it blew the lid off the Sherry case for the public. Everyone was astounded. The claims to know all about why Margaret and Vincent Sherry were murdered because he was there when the arrangements for the killings were made. I don't know where Bobby Joe Fabian came up with the story that he told Ed Bryson. I do know that, that it's not true. Was, was Pete Ouellette there? Yeah. I've known him my whole life. That's impossible. And you're sure of that? I'm positive of it. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a creation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Chief Content Officer and Founding Partner of Cadence 13, along with Jed Lipinski, Tom Lipinski and Ken Lee. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed and produced by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support by Ian Mott, Margot Gray, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Cherry. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Marketing, PR, sales and operations and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat. I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.